Today I'm talking to Bob Elliott, CEO and CIO of Unlimited. That's a good name for an asset manager he says he co-founded to bring investments to individuals that have been primarily available only to big pensions and endowments, or the very rich. Using machine learning and other computing techniques, Unlimited replicates what's happening in hedge funds and soon private equity and venture capital. You'll have to listen to find out what that really means. Bob was part of the machine that provided those so-called sophisticated investments to institutions as head of Ray Dalio's research team for many years at Bridgewater, still the biggest hedge fund. Under Dalio, he created investment strategies in stocks, fixed income rates, and commodities, but he decided to go off on his own and in 2022, Unlimited launched its first ETF. Bob also is one of the few botanists in the investments industry. Yeah, of course you say. But Bob argues that there is a very direct connection between botany and investments. I love that part of the combo. So listen in to find out how Bob plans to bring alternative investments down market. Oh, he'll hate that description. His thoughts about the hedge fund industry, some deets about his future plans, and a fun story he told me about his conversations with venture capitalists when Unlimited was raising money. It's a good one. Stay tuned. So you were a botanist. You studied botany. How did you go from that to finance? Yeah, I mean, I I was uh, I was actually a pretty pretty serious botanist in high school. It was probably the primary reason why I got into Harvard and and continued to study there. And I think one of the things that drew me to to botany was. Uh, Really, two things. One, a way of thinking, which was really around systematics. And so if you think about, you know, a plant is an intersection of a bunch of different unique systems, say the water transport systems with the nutrient transport systems, with the uh, ecology of the environment, and how all those different pieces interact, determine whether or not you know, a plant is successful or not, whether, uh, you know, pests are successful or not relative to the plant. And so that was really sort of got me into understanding uh, and, and, and really got me interested in plants. And I think the connection to macro and finance, I think, is from someone who's coming from a, a science perspective, hard science perspective, is actually not, it's not that great a leap, right? Right, like there's lots of physicists and electrical engineers and all sorts of engineers in finance. But, but not many botanists, because there aren't that many botanists in the world out there studying. And so, in some ways, you know, no different than an engineer or or a physicist who comes to markets. It's just, you know, I, I had a had a bit of a different science background than than some of the others. Right, right. Well, it's funny. I think that when you and I first met, you mentioned it was a bit of career alpha with botany. Like now they're somewhat in demand. The wonderful thing about uh, botanists is that understanding, you know, agriculture is a critical component of any economy. And you'd be surprised at how much is not understood about plant development. And uh, at the same time, how many people are going into that into that field, thinking about it, working on it, and so it really was. You know, it was a it was a way. Of, actually, as a, as a young child, I I was very interested in in uh, in gardening and agriculture, and so that got me into it. Was that passion and that interest? Although I then subsequently learned it was actually quite an edge to at least get get through my college days. Right, right. Do you still garden? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. The uh, uh, just the other day, I posted something on my Twitter, 
which said that I, you know, I, I, I garden uh, my tomatoes, uh, like my investment strategies with <laughs> a lot of diversification. And I showed all the different tomato plants uh, and tomatoes that I was harvesting, a bunch of different varieties, because you never know at any one year, you know, certain tomato varieties are going to be successful and certain other ones are uh, are not going to be successful. And it's to the uh, randomness and chance of the agricultural gods. And so, uh, you know, you got to plant a bunch of uh, different kinds and hopefully uh, you get a decent crop. My daughter and I just went to a three-day program with the woman who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass. So my daughter was a bio major and so I'll have to get you later to maybe connect her to some botanists. <laughs> some botanists. Uh, there's, there, you know, there's some great botanists out there. A lot, a lot of uh, cool innovation that's going on in the botanical field, which I know it's hard to believe <laughs> when you think about, you know, something that's been a, a, a foundational element of, you know, human civilization for thousands of years. And nonetheless, there's probably there's more that we don't know about botany than there is that we know. Right. Right. Well, we're going to need that with climate change, but we're not going to get off on that tangent. <laughs> But now Unlimited is uh, it wants to give individuals access to those. I think you even use the word sophisticated investments. They've really not had that kind of access. And you're you're kind of leveraging this theme of democratization. And you know, the big private equity firms are doing that. But describe how you're doing that. Really, you have one fund right now. Tell me the the method, how. Well, I think what we're trying to do at Unlimited is bring those sort of sophisticated strategies called 2 and 20 strategies, which, mm. you know, uh, institutional investors will be familiar with. What that means is that's a quick way of describing a set of strategies like hedge funds, venture capital, private equity that typically charge a 2% management fee and a 20% performance fee. But really what it describes is a set of strategies that are typically only available to institutional investors. And while there's been a fair amount of effort from many large institutions to make their strategies available to wealthy individuals through a variety of different platforms. By and large, the accessibility of those strategies, they've increased accessibility, but they haven't dealt with the fee problem. And typically, actually, what they're doing is they're adding fees onto already extraordinarily high fees to make those products accessible. So Wider accessibility at higher fees isn't necessarily a better outcome for clients. Right, right. They're actually making it more expensive. It's actually making it more expensive. Mm. And so our idea, you know, harkened back to the world of Vanguard, which the goal there was more accessibility and lower fees. Mm -hmm. And so how do you go through a process of creating more accessibility and lower fees? And it's through the use of technology. And that's the very simple way to describe what we're doing, which is we're drawing on our decades of experience. My co-founder Bruce and I have decades of experience in the hedge fund industry as well as time in other areas of the 2 and 20 business. We've built a technology using modern approaches, modern machine learning type approaches, and, and our wealth of experience, have, experience having built these proprietary strategies that allows us to look over the shoulder of what these 2 and 20 asset managers are doing, see what they're doing in close to real time, take that understanding, translate it into long and short positions and liquid securities that we can package in an investor-friendly and accessible form like ETFs so that every investor can have access to these styles of strategy. Right. Try to break down the technology, right? I mean, you said a couple of things here, like looking over the shoulders of some of the best investors in the world, hedge funds, 
are notoriously secretive, and then kind of, you know, bundling that up into a fund, right, that is, is designed to give overall exposure to hedge fund strategies, right? Talk about the technology in a way that, you know, I can understand it. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it starts with a basic intuition. Like, if you see a fund's returns, mm-hmm. right, and you know something about the fund, like what kind of assets it, type, it typically invests in, and you know what happened in the markets at that time, you almost always quickly think, oh, they must have been this, they must have had this, that, or the other positions on. I think a perfect example, and it sticks out to me because it was when we were building the technology, it's like global macro funds in the first half of 2022 did great, twice as good as they've ever done over a similar time frame in, in their history. Okay, well, it was a period of large market moves, which, you know, bonds sold off, stocks sold off, short rates sold off, the dollar went up, uh, commodities went up. Okay, well, if they did really well, and they typically invest in major macro markets, and those markets did what I just described – then you have some inference about what are the types of positions they must have had on in aggregate to generate the returns that we're seeing. So just intuitively, if you understand the markets, you can kind of see. You can kind of you can kind of look at the returns, mm-hmm. look at what's happened in the markets, know what the types of strategies are that these investors, the types of assets or positions these investors invest in, and you kind of solve. You know, many people will just sort of with your, you know, your intuition solve for what is the portfolio that must have done that. Now, all we're doing at Unlimited with our technology is we're basically doing that process, but just doing it in a more rigorous way than like eyeballing it and taking a guess, right? (laughs) There's lots of, you know, modern statistical techniques that you can apply to these sorts of problems that have actually come a long way combined with uh, increasing, you know, computing capacity and things like that, that allow us to be able to do that, to draw those inferences in a systematic way with, you know, uh, and, and to be able to to understand, to have a pretty good understanding of what those managers are doing in that close to real time. Because we get the information about the manager's performance, you know, uh, well, there's some daily data and then some mm-hmm. data that's monthly that's pretty timely as well. That's public. And that's public. You know, there's a whole variety of different hedge fund performance aggregators that are out there. I mean, people who are listening to this, I'm, I'm sure are familiar with these indices, HFRI and uh, Barclay Hedge and Credit Suisse and Bloomberg. And, you know, there's all these different places that are doing it. We use a proprietary mix of those different indices in terms of the data that we're looking at. But that's, you know, we basically have a pretty good sense as to how they're doing in close to real time. And so we can draw these inferences using our technology. Got it. So, I mean, obviously, institutional investors really drove you know, the growth of the hedge fund industry. So tell me a little bit more about that. Like, what types of institutions, you know, I mean, are they just experiment? I mean, they must be just experimenting at this point. Yeah, but well, what are they thinking? Well, I think a lot of um, institutions, you know, particularly public institutions, face a real challenge around making sure that they're justifying the fees that they're paying, right? And so... And they have um, to disclose them in detail. And they have detail. to disclose them in detail. And that is, you know, from a public funds perspective, you know, that can be challenging to say, uh, hey, look, you know, we're paying the billionaire hedge fund managers out of the pockets of, you know, the firefighters and the teachers. Mm-hmm. Particularly when you see that sometimes those individual managers aren't generating the sorts of returns that, you know, really justify the fees that they're offering. Right. And so I think for institutions like that, what they see is the opportunity to be able to find a 
know, in some ways a benchmark, right? Like okay. if you if you can't build a, a a hedge fund portfolio that beats, you know, that beats the index by 300 basis points, um, you know, then does it make sense to even have all the infrastructure and the hassle of doing direct fund investments? So right? interesting. So part of this is just a could be just a benchmark. It, it is. I mean, and yeah. I think I think it certainly I I think it certainly uh offers an opportunity to be that sort of benchmark where it's like, you know, here's something that, you know, essentially takes no no meaningful effort from the investor to go right. buy into, right? You don't have to have a, a sea of analysts and diligence and all that stuff. So anyone can go buy this security. And so it is in many ways the idea of what is the essentially the easiest or the simplest way to gain access to that type of exposure. Uh, and then the question is, can you beat what is the simplest way to get access to that type of exposure? In the same way, you know, we're all looking, if you're an equity manager, right, the question is, can you beat the S&P 500 or not, mm-hmm. net of your fees? There's no reason why we shouldn't think about hedge fund style strategies the same way. Can you, as an individual manager, reliably beat the index? And particularly for allocators, can you build portfolios over time that reliably beat the index at a lower fee point? And I think the thing that's really interesting is if you look at the most you know sophisticated allocators in the world, people who spend their whole lives, basically their whole professional focus is around picking managers, what you see is that they reliably underperform the index and what they're doing, that's the index net of fees, plus they're charging fees on top of it. So imagine what you're doing is you're comparing a fund-to-fund structure, right, which has got the 2 and 20 fees of the managers plus a management fee on top of it, to something that's got a 95 basis point management fee. That's pretty different, right? right? right. That hurdle rate is pretty different. And so what I think it highlights is you can have maybe the, the strategy – of trying to look over the shoulder and infer what they're doing. It's an imperfect strategy, but if it's lower cost and more tax efficient, it creates a heck of a competition to those traditional diversified fund manager funds that are out there. That's a big, big hurdle for sure. You don't want to just be a benchmark, right? I mean, you want these institutions to actually invest, you know, buy the ETF. Like, how do you see that? Do you think that that could really make a dent I mean, as someone who's covered institutional investors for a very long time, my go-to would be, oh, skeptical, but really interesting. I think the main question is, in terms of that progression, is whether or not allocators will wrestle with the fact around their ability to successfully pick funds. Mm-hmm. And for years, it has been somewhat obfuscated whether someone is actually able Mm -hmm. or allocators are actually able to pick funds reliably over time. And now the question, you know, now what we're what we're offering is an alternative to say, okay, like you have teams that pick funds. Can you beat the benchmark plus 300 basis points? Like, is that something that your team can do? If they can, if you can beat the benchmark plus 300 basis points, then let me tell you, that's what you should go do. <laughs> go really, do it. Yeah. go do it. Go absolutely go do it. Now, I'm, of course, skeptical of that because in the long history, when you actually roll up your sleeves and look at the numbers, you don't see allocators able to build portfolios that reliably outperform the benchmark. Mm-hmm. That's what we're looking at is that is that is where the competitive, you know, the, the competition really exists is are folks going to continue to chase to try and find the right tail? 
-hmm. right? And inevitably underperform as a result of that over and over and over again, right? Or are they going to recognize, are they going to start to think about hedge fund strategies not as individual manager savants that you're trying to find the next great Mm -hmm. one of, but instead a set of acumen, that people are bringing to the table in the same way you, you you know, when you think about stocks, you think about like the S&P 500, and that is the way in which you gain exposure to stocks. And then you might add, you know, differences on top of that. There's no reason why you shouldn't think about hedge fund strategies and what I call diversified alpha strategies is maybe a better way to describe it. There's no reason why you shouldn't think about it the same way. It's just diversified alpha is just a different form of return stream in the same way that there's stocks and bonds and gold and, credit and all those different other return streams that have certain attributes, certain characteristics, et cetera, that you do to put, you know, that, that deliver a certain composition of portfolio return over time. Got it. Very interesting. So, okay, let's project out then, right? Like, let's say you, you know, $500 billion in assets. What, what, I'm sure you like that. What does this mean for the hedge fund industry? Okay, let's scale it back a little bit. Not $500 billion, Let's say, you know, $10 billion. Well, What I, does it mean for the hedge fund industry? I mean, look, for the hedge fund industry, the hedge fund industry is 3,000 managers and $5 trillion of assets, and it's not going away anytime soon. Right. And, you know, it's made up of the most sophisticated, innovative asset managers in the world. If we had $10 billion, no one would notice us. Right. No, I mean, ten billion dollars of five trillion right. is irrelevant. It could make us a wildly successful asset manager, but it would be a very limited impact on the on the hedge fund industry. Okay, but think bigger then. Could this, in ten years or fifteen years, really impact the industry? Force fees down, force more transparency. Right. I mean, that's your reason for being is this democratization. Project out the biggest likelihood of what having this this tool set or these these types of strategies available to investors is is it's going to start to really raise the question of should marginal managers receive any capital and you know today the hurdle rate is basically since you don't have strat you don't have access even institutional allocators don't really have access to these sorts of strategies in a form that they can invest in the only way that you get access to hedge fund style strategies is by investing in managers and holding a portfolio of those managers. And your hurdle rate is something like the index and probably a little worse than the index because, you know, you'll you'll keep some managers around and stuff like that. Right. right? And so if you think about that distribution of 3,000 hedge fund managers, there's a lot of folks who are who are underperforming the index, right, who probably don't justify the fees that they're charging and the returns that they're delivering, uh, but that are still kept around. Now, what if we raise that benchmark and said, no, no, the benchmark is not, you know, the index minus 100 basis points. What if the it's the index plus 300 basis points, right? Well, now we're talking about a very different story where a lot more managers become, you know, look more marginal relative to the fees that they're charging. And so there's basically two options for those, those asset managers. Either they're going to go out of business or they're going to lower their fees, or they're going to get better. Right. And that's the thing that's actually really interesting about this process is what we're doing with our technology is we're looking over the shoulder of the asset management of the hedge fund community, seeing how they're positioning and seeing what's driving their returns, and then reflecting that. Well, if through our observation of their behavior and repricing of the cost of access to those returns, 
we remove marginal managers, we essentially outcompete marginal managers, the pool actually gets better. And our technology is now looking at a better pool of returns to then reflect that back. And so so it's actually, I see it as a very positive thing, the fact that we can create a competitive strategy to outcompete those marginal managers because not only is it going to lower the fees and improve the returns of the industry, but it'll actually make us better over right. time. That's a really interesting scenario for sure. Well, talk about another area that I know you're interested in. I mean, replicating private equity and venture capital. Now, this is very different because these are, you know, by definition, private companies, startups, and there have been some attempts you know, to do this. I think there's uh, a couple of ETFs. I think one um, was shut down recently. Tell me about that. What are the the challenges and, uh, you know, what are the benefits? You know, we've talked a lot about hedge funds and, and the interesting thing is that understanding how hedge funds are positioned and evolving is actually quite a bit harder because they are more agile than private equity or venture capital. And so when you turn to private equity, venture capital, and private credit, what you're looking at is primarily long-only strategies that have a set of relatively straightforward criteria that make up the portfolios. And the first thing I'd say is when you think about those portfolio returns, you know, a lot of folks will focus on the million-dollar check into a small-scale company, you know, a million-dollar seed check. But those funds and the and the and the dollars that go into the funds, particularly in the venture capital space, the dollar weighted returns are driven by the big companies, mm-hmm. right? And many venture funds either have meaningful exposures to the very large, still private companies, or even have exposure to publicly traded, you know, post IPO companies, et cetera. And so that's what's really driving the returns, the dollar returns, not okay. really the small checks. And so those companies building lookalikes of those companies is actually relatively straightforward since a fair amount that are in the private domain have companies that look lo- look similarly in the public domain and vice versa uh, because, you know, companies are moving in and out of the pri- private and public domain. Faster than ever, yeah. And so what, what you can do is you can look at the types of companies that the the venture capitalists are holding in their portfolios. So you have pretty good data on this from a variety of different sources. You can look at what's going on in the public markets, and you can find those look-alike, mo- you know, those look-alike companies and start to build portfolios that match things like sector composition, attribute composition, et cetera. And I think a good intuition for this, particularly in the venture capital space, is like, look, you could take venture capitalists, they invest in high-growth low profitability companies that are still pretty small. Well, if you took the Russell 2000 growth index and you overweighted it to unprofitable tech companies, you would have a top 20% venture capital firm over the last 25 years. And and that's just, I mean, what we're doing with it is meaningfully more substantive than that, but that helps you build the the intuition about it, which is like where, there is no magic here. These investors are taking long-only positions in companies with certain attributes that can be found in the public domain. But what they're doing is they're charging you, you know, six to 800 basis points a year on average, and they're holding up your money for 10 years, 10, 12, 15 years, right? Right. Why should that be the case? If you want that economic exposure, no problem. You can find that economic exposure, but it can be packaged in a way where you don't pay six, seven hundred, eight hundred 800 basis points of fees and where, you know, you have liquidity the same day, right? Like that's right. that's the idea. And so, 
you know, with those thresholds, like a manager that's charging those fees and a liquidity profile that looks like that, like it doesn't take a lot to beat that type of asset for the everyday investor. Okay, private equity funds and venture capital, they're obviously, you know, the valuations are done on a quarterly basis uh, by committee. It's not a standard process. And your public market counterparts, of course, will be, you know, priced in real time. Now, evaluating a company's, you know, actual fair value quarterly is not perfect, and we know that that volatility is kind of, or lack of volatility is a little false. But how do you explain that volatility then to, especially to individual investors? I think the big staking point is going to be with institutional investors who have become accustomed to demonstrating what look like better risk-adjusted returns through the process of marking to market essentially on a quarterly or usually on an annual basis in terms of their exposures. Right. Now, that has that has, you know, very much in fad because it looks like a better sharp ratio, but I think the most important thing to recognize is that they are paying for that. Right? Mm-hmm. Those if the returns can be generated using public market securities, right? Better than, better, you know, equivalent to what they're generating in the private markets, then what they're doing is they're paying six to 800 basis points in fees in order to volatility wash. (laughs) And while it'll probably make me no friends, like that is not the work of a fiduciary who is responsible for their client's money. Paying high fees essentially deteriorating returns in order to look better in terms of the return, the the return profile, to look better, Mm. not to be better, but to look better, is a bad outcome for the investors. And it's high time that investors don't accept that anymore. Right. Well, so that's one impact. You know, talk more about the impact on private equity and venture capital and private credit and maybe real estate. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, those strategies, whether it's venture capital or private equity, and certainly private credit, allocators have not figured out, uh, have not sufficiently learned about the about the real, I'd say, range of outcomes of those strategies as they sort of uniquely stand themselves, right? So I think a lot of folks invest in particular managers, right? And the manager volatility, you know, is the main thing that drives the returns, right? Whether the manager ends up in the top quartile or the bottom quartile, that's a much bigger driver of the outcomes than, let's call it the 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 returns of that type of investment strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Venture capital is not that complicated investment strategy. Buy high growth companies, right? Right. That's what it is. Buy high growth companies. Okay, well, you can look at what happens if I buy high growth companies. Is that a good return stream to have in my portfolio? Is it a bad return stream to have in my portfolio? Similarly, private equity, buying, you know, value-priced cash-flowing businesses and using a little leverage, well, that right there, that that's a return stream. You can look at that return stream and say whether or not that is a good return stream or not in a portfolio. And I think the thing that's interesting about these things is certainly when you start to talk about the way that they're constructed, the, the randomness of 
the outcomes when you're investing in individual managers means it's essentially impossible to build reliable portfolios because there is so much uncertainty about how these returns will play out and, frankly, when they'll play out, right? You know, if you're investing in a venture capital fund, who knows when you'll get your money back, right? But by creating low-cost indexes and index-style products for these funds, you can start to think about what value, how much of a portfolio uh, should these different strategies have? What are the attributes? It's a much more understandable portfolio construction question than just investing in a few particular managers where the outcomes are you know, highly, highly uncertain. Well, so democratization, it does sound really good, but it's also, it seems like it's ripe for some abuse or investors getting into products that they didn't necessarily understand. I mean, is it really a good thing? Do we really need to go there? Put your other hat on. Well, I, I think the idea of bringing a high-quality strategies to the everyday investor is something that I at least find compelling. Like, And there's a long and, frankly, good history of this, starting with Vanguard, the ability mm-hmm. to sort of bring to the masses very low-cost accessible strategies, but not just Vanguard, place like Betterment or, or, or Wealthfront that is, you know, helps the robo-advisor community, right, that, that helps investors more effectively manage their portfolio in a way that you know, you'd expect over time to generate better returns. And so I think this is along that, that spectrum and that, and that dimension of bringing better strategies to investors at lower cost to give them more sophisticated approaches to help them, you know, preserve and grow grow wealth over time. I think the the main sort of what I call the sort of qualifying uh, determinant of whether an incremental set of work is a positive or a benefit to investors is that question, that intersection of accessibility and cost. And so if you're bringing something to market that increases accessibility but also increases the costs, I think there's a real question about whether or not that's actually benefiting investors over time. But that being said, there's a lot out there, a lot of opportunity to bring lower cost, more accessibility. And so let's like focus our attention on that quadrant, right? Right, right. Of who can be the next Jack Bogle, right? Who can bring more accessibility at lower cost? That's the problem we should be cracking. And too many mm. people, frankly, are out there looking at how do we bring a new strategy and are more concerned about their own, you know, making making a buck off the new strategy rather than putting investors in a better position to earn better returns at a lower cost, which over time you'd expect to benefit them. Well, the margins are so, in the investment industry, are so lush, for lack of a better word. Like, there's a lot, a lot of room to go. That's one of the things that I think really drew me to the space around making these sorts of tools available is, is sitting there and thinking, what industry in the world looks essentially the same today as it did 40 years ago, right? I mean, just think about it. Hedge funds, like... What have they done for the last 40 years? They've basically hired a bunch of smart people, mm-hmm. you know, star PMs, paid them a whole bunch of money, and charged institutional investors 2 and 20 to do it. Now, like, yeah, fees today are more like 1.4 and 16 and not 2 and 20, but that is a pretty marginal difference in the scheme of things. Well, there's 3 and 30. Yeah, the most expensive funds are 3 and 30 or 
or worse or meaningfully worse than that. And maybe we take a step back and look at the broader two and 20 industry. The broader two and 20 industry, including hedge funds and private equity and venture capital, charges $700 billion in fees, looks the same today as it did you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, investors, like in what in what area of, of your life are you experiencing the same costs, the same outcome as you did 40 years ago? Right. Right? No, no other areas, but yet we, we allow, we allow this sec- sector, this industry to be able to continue to operate that way. It makes no sense. And so that's the basic idea is how do we bring, you know, in the same way technology has totally changed all of our lives in all sorts of different ways, Right. Technology can change the way in which investors get access to sophisticated investment strategies. And that's all we're doing is bringing technology and our experience, which is important as an, as an asset manager to understand and have that expertise, but bring those things together to be able to say, you know, no, 2 and 20 is not the right price for these types of strategies. Uh, only having it available to institutional investors is not the right choice for these types of strategies. Let's mm-hmm. bring down the cost, increase the accessibility, leveraging technology, just in the same way we've done the same thing with all sorts of other areas of our lives. Right. It is amazing that it hasn't really changed that much. I always think of, you know, other industries, there's innovations. I mean, you know, think of the stent. Yeah, there were a lot of people that made a lot of money and continue to make a lot of money off stents, but patients, people really do benefit. Absolutely. Um, and it doesn't happen the same way in finance. Well, I, I always love, you know, we, we raised a Series A uh, a couple of months ago. Yes. And I always loved opening a conversation with a venture capitalist. And every one of those conversations was the same, which is, you know, much in the way we're sitting in a studio looking at each other across the table. We would we would sit down and look at each other across the table and they would sort of s- stare into my eyes and say, do you have what it takes to build a company? And... I'd look at them and say, oh, what do I think about you? And I'd sit there and I'd say to them, well, look, you see what you're doing right now? It's the same thing that you've been doing for 40 years, (laughs) right? The same thing. And why should that be the case? Why can't I take what you're doing right now, understand the fundamental decision rules that you're applying to it to pick the types of companies that you're going to invest in, take that understanding, build technology around that understanding, and do what you're doing as a one-on-one conversation that is no different than it was decades ago, right? And instead, take that understanding and make it much cheaper, much more efficient by finding securities that look like the outcomes of the decision-making process. And so that's that was always, always a fun moment in the in the venture capitalist like conversation, which is like, well, I, I you know, I'm trying to you know, replace what you're doing right now, you know, with technology. And right. they sort of say, well, that's, I like to invest in technology, but I don't, not sure I want to be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> and that, <laughs> that created a nice little, uh, you know. That was a moment. That was always a, a fun, a fun moment in the conversation. Of course, we've been lucky to, to have some great partners who see the benefit that maybe over time, uh, uh, a lot of that work is going to get replaced by technology or those returns can be accessed using technology. So, you know, we've been lucky to raise uh, some capital, keep the the business uh, expanding, but uh, always a funny moment in that process. Uh, that, is, that is great. So what have 
some hedge fund managers uh, told you? There's a variety of different input from hedge fund managers that uh, that I've talked to. I think some of the the more uh, forward-leaning managers actually see the opportunity to use these strategies in their own portfolios. So for instance, episodic managers, you know, managers who might be looking for particular points in time where they're where they have good opportunities, but otherwise have to hold cash or essentially, you know, how do they put themselves in the best position to show their alpha? Those are managers that see these sorts of things as actually this could be very beneficial to them. They so could use they them. They could use them. Okay. Yep. In terms of their portfolio because it'll it means that they don't have index drag during periods of time where their episodic uh, opportunities are not available. Right. And so that's you know, that's a good example of how, you know, these are tools. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a lot of different ways in which these tools can be used. Of course, there's a subset uh, of folks that I've talked to who, you know, will will say there is no way that you can get close to what we're doing and the level of sophistication <laughs> of what we're doing. And, you know, therefore, this is a fool's errand. And that's OK. That's OK. There, there will always be a role for the individual manager running highly complex strategies. I think the main question is, as an allocator, as an investor who's trying to build reliable, consistent portfolios over time, what is a better outcome for you? Is it the low-cost, tax-efficient return stream that you can understand, that you have pretty, you know, a pretty good understanding of what it will look like, or the individual manager for which you know there's much higher costs and a wide range of plausible outcomes, and so that that's the trade-off, right? Like, and 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 it is true, we do not, and we can't, you know, we wouldn't seek to uh, match the returns of the individual asset manager. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to create uh, a return, a tool. We're trying to create a set of tools that provide these sorts of return streams that allocators can use to build the best portfolios possible. Trying to build a better world, you know. (laughs) So back to botany. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, obviously, you've been in finance for such a long time, and you speak that language, and and, uh, and now you're trying to do something new. Do you sometimes think to yourself, like, you know, the other path taken? Or or maybe if you get to the $500 billion I mentioned earlier, you might uh, quit this all together and, and go back to, uh, to plants? Well, I think, you know, it's always, uh, always been a dream to have the hobby farm. Maybe that's uh, my guess is that that's probably a, a retirement dream at some point <laughs> when we uh, maybe when we get that uh, $500 billion under management. But I continue to love gardening. Uh, and and the joys of botany, let's say, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, I find it, I find the process very uh, meditative and peaceful. And also, I think it's always a good reminder of all the uncertainty that exists, because when you when you put that plant in the ground and you tend to it and try and get it to grow, there's only so much you can control, right? Right, right, right. Whether it's the weather or the the plant itself or pests or the chipmunk that just stole my best looking <laughs> tomato this weekend right Damn. There's, there's only so much that you can control and i think that that that's a good you know in the asset management world that's a good lesson for life which is uh is you want to think about you know think about uh and recognize and understand that there's only so much that you can do, and and so you know, of course, you try and try and mitigate those risks as much as possible, but you also have to live with that uncertainty and and do your best in that 
in that situation. That's great. Well, I want a tomato. <laughs> I should have grabbed one to bring you it in. should have grabbed a tomato for sure. <laughs> Next time, you owe me one of those great heirloom tomatoes. Yeah, that's the one that Chipmunk took. Uh, <laughs> chipmunks, uh, you might not realize that chipmunks are some of the worst uh, offenders when it comes to stealing close to ripe tomatoes. They, it's been a story of my life is the, is the danger of chipmunks. But they're so cute. They are cute. That's definitely true. That's so cute. Well, thank you. This is so great. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Julie Siegel. A Conversation with Julie Siegel is produced by Deanna Chapman. And always check out institutionalinvestor.com for more. 